We're right back in Matthew chapter 5. We are working through the Beatitudes as the first part of our study on the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is about the culture of the kingdom of God, and the Beatitudes are about kingdom people. What should people say a Christian is like? What do you think people in our culture would say these days? Very often, they might say intolerant, Republican, (laughs) or Democrat, depending on which side of the theological spectrum you are, a demographic. What should people say a Christian is like? We're about to read it, beginning at verse one. Now when Jesus saw the crowd, He went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you falsely, and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice And be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Today we look at the fifth beatitude. You could break these eight beatitudes down into two groupings. The first four are about our attitude towards God, and the second four are about our attitude towards people. And so this fifth beatitude is the first in that second category. And it's interesting that the first quality in a citizen of a kingdom towards other people is the attitude of mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. John Wesley was one of the great preachers of the Great Awakening. He was in Georgia. The governor had a slave who had run away He had stolen a jug of wine, and the governor had planned, as was his legal right in that day, to beat this slave to within an inch of his life. John Wesley interceded on behalf of the slave, and the governor's response to him was, I want vengeance. I never forgive. Wesley's response to the governor was, Sir, I hope to God that you never sin." And that is the essence of this fifth beatitude. Somehow, the mercy that we receive is connected inseparably from the mercy that we extend to others. In Wesley's day, mercy was seen as a weak character quality. But that was also true at the time of Christ. Rome was a merciless Empire, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, one of the longest periods of history where there were no massive wars, was won not because Rome was good at negotiating, but because of their mighty fist. Their negotiating tactics were based on this axiom show no mercy. 
It would not be uncommon for a slave owner in that day, once a slave had lost its usefulness, either by illness or by age, to simply abandon them out to the elements or to provide them to the Colosseum for entertainment purposes to be fed to the animals. For a father who had a son born who was infirmed or invalid, or a daughter who was unwanted, to simply leave them to die to exposure. And the Jewish people of that day, certainly they had the Ten Commandments that they followed, but the laws that they had created around that Decalogue, the Pharisaical law, was merciless. It was into this culture that Jesus brought this radical idea of what the kingdom of God was really all about. It is not those who are about justice and judgment who inherit the kingdom of God. It's those who exude mercy. We would like to think that we've come a long way from Rome and Phariseeism and even early American slavery, that we are somehow a more merciful culture. But even today, we have much to learn about what Jesus actually meant about mercy. So with that in mind, let's dig in. The first point, have mercy. Yes, it's an Elvis phrase. I thought about calling the whole sermon Graceland, but I thought that would be pushing it a little bit. (laughs) Who are the merciful? You know that Jesus spoke in Aramaic. The writers of the Gospels translated his words into Greek, and then what we have is a translation into English, so we're twice removed from Jesus' words. But the Greek word that the authors chose to use is actually a restatement of the Hebrew. Because as colorful as it was, for instance, the Greek language has five words for our single word love. Very colorful language, and yet the Greek language fell short of the Hebrew concept of mercy, and so they just adopted that word. It actually means to go inside a person's skin and see from their point of view to think as someone in desperate circumstances. But it's not just enough to say empathy because this Hebrew word assumes that proper action will result from this new perspective. What I choose to do is colored, is informed by the fact that I have considered the perspective of the other person. Mercy is best understood when put side by side with its sister concept, grace. Grace and mercy are two critical components of the gospel, and they are not the same thing. Grace is God's response to our sinfulness. But listen, mercy is God's response to our misery. Grace is God giving me what I don't deserve. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. We can find a passage in Scripture to help us see this a little more clearly. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I encourage you to turn with me. In these 10 verses, Paul is laying out a before and an after who we were before the grace of God, before redemption, and then who we have become. And right in the middle, you see these two glorious principles of redemption. 
mercy, and grace. Let's begin reading at verse one. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like everyone else, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Strong words there, deserving of wrath. Conjures for our culture that God is a God that judges angrily. He's got wrath, but the concept here is wrath is the result of our disobedience. How does wrath come upon us? Does God bring wrath? No, we bring wrath by our rebellion. By coming out from under God's plan and God's life for us, we live in such a way that wrath is the natural impact. Think of wrath versus blessedness. The key word of the Beatitudes is markarios. It's the blessed life. It's the life that is whole in every way as God intended it to be. Wrath is life outside of that blessedness. It's because we chose to not live in God's blessedness. We, therefore, were by nature children, one translation says, of wrath. But then God did act. When God acted, he acted out of mercy and grace. Verse four, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. There's mercy. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace, there's grace, you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So our actions resulted in life apart from God's plan for us, brokenness, wrath, and by God's mercy and grace he stepped in and gave us by grace what we don't deserve, gave us life, seated in the heavenly realms, gave us citizenship of his kingdom, and then gave us a calling, works that he had prepared long before for us to do. In other words, God always had the right plan, and it was his mercy and grace that led us from wrath into that plan, because God chose to act. Now, one of the things we've learned is that mercy is putting yourself into the skin of someone so that you see from their perspective. Now think about that. Based on that, what is the best representation of mercy in the story of the Bible? Yeah, it's the incarnation. God took on flesh and lived from within that perspective for 33 years. That's why the writer of Hebrews says we are not without a priest who is not sympathetic towards us because he has been tempted, he has experienced life in every way that we've experienced it. Christ 
was merciful, not just in the cross, he was merciful in the incarnation. He humbled himself and was found in appearance as a man. I like being a man. I like this body. I used to like this body. (laughs) I think that God did a great job. There are times, like the psalmist, I stand in front of the mirror and say, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. (laughs) And you ought to do that too, because we are all fearfully and wonderfully made. The height of God's creative work, bearing the image of God. We're something. But for God to become us, that's scandalous. Christ took on skin and perceived life through human eyes for 33 years. And then he acted. He took the punishment so that we could not receive what we deserved. That's mercy. And therefore, by God's grace, we can receive what we haven't earned. New life, citizenship in heaven, new purpose and plan, blessedness. You following me? So if that's mercy, then let's double back to the beatitude. What does it then mean to be merciful? I think Ephesians 2 captures that for us when it says God who is rich in mercy. So think of that as the definition of merciful. If mercy is all this incredible stuff we just said it is, then Being merciful means I'm rich in it. You know, in the Bible, richness is synonymous with generosity. Richness in English is about accumulation and savings bonds and retirement. Richness in Scripture is about blessing and giving away and generosity and abundance and overflow. So when the Bible says we are to be rich in mercy, it means we are to be overflowing with it. We are to be outrageously generous with mercy. Being merciful is a life full of mercy. You see, it's not just a periodic act. It is a state of existence. Jesus in Luke chapter six said this to us. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. I want to show you a video. Before there was 9-11, before there was school shootings as part of our annual news cycle, there was Columbine High School, 1999. It's hard to believe that was 16 years ago. 12 students and a teacher killed And the father of the very first girl to be shot speaks about his struggle with mercy. I'd like you to watch it. Well, my my daughter Rachel was the first one to be shot and killed in the tragedy at Columbine High School, April 20th, 1999. And that morning I had uh, uh, gone to a store and my cell phone rang at about 1140. And my wife said that there had been a shooting. A neighbor had run across and told her there had been a shooting at the school. And so I rushed, rushed out, got in my car, started across town, got caught up in a massive traffic jam, and turned on the radio. And was, I wasn't expecting to hear what I heard. I, I was thinking probably a kid took a gun to school and shot at a teacher or someone he was mad at. 
and wasn't even expecting to hear uh, an announcer sobbing saying that 35 or so kids had been shot and that a number of them had been killed. And immediately I was thinking of my daughter Rachel, my son Craig, who were both students there, and my brother had two children there as well. And uh, so I, I started hyperventilating. I mean, I, I started praying and crying and, you know, just uh, felt like I was going to have a heart attack when I heard that news and rushed across town. We waited in an elementary school for hours as busloads of young people came from the school. And they walked, marched them across the stage and they called out their names. And slowly the crowd dwindled down until there was just a handful of people left. And they told us there was one bus left coming from Columbine. And I remember running outside, uh, balancing on a small fence, looking in the bus windows when it pulled up. And when the final students got off the bus, there were still 13 families that had loved ones that were unaccounted for, a teacher and 12 students. That day uh, was the most horrible day of my life. And I think the hard part was not knowing uh, whether Rachel was dead or alive. We, we had heard from my son, Craig. We had heard from... Uh, Jeff and Sarah, my nephew and niece. But uh, by midnight that night, we we assumed that Rachel was one of the ones killed. We called every hospital, and our only hope was that she was unconscious and that perhaps she had been shot and wounded and hid in a closet somewhere that no one had looked in. It was our only hope. And at, at noon the next day, we got the official word that she was the first one to be shot and killed. Columbine. And then my son, Craig, had gone through incredible trauma. He was in the library, and his two close friends who were both on the football team, Craig was on the wrestling team, the three of them were sitting at a table talking in the library, and two boys ran into the room with guns and began to kill students all around Craig. Cassie Bernal was killed 10 feet behind my son. Val Shinor, a young girl that was also asked if she believed in God, was shot, I think, eight times and survived. And... Uh, they came to the table where Craig was at and began to taunt one of my son's best friends, who was a, a black student, with racial slurs. And they shot and killed Isaiah. They shot Matthew Kector. And Craig was literally covered with the blood of his own friends. They turned their guns on him, and at that point, the sprinkler system went off in the library from smoke in the room. And it distracted the boys, and they never came back to where Craig was at, or I would have lost two children that day. One of the things we discovered after Rachel died, <clears throat> I was in her bedroom with my daughter, Bethany, and we were looking at some of Rachel's things. We were talking about her, and I happened to see two pieces of paper caught on the mattress springs under Rachel's bed, and I pulled them out, and it was an essay that she had written for her fifth period class a month before she died, and it was called My Ethics, My Codes of Life. And in that essay, Rachel challenged her reader to start a chain reaction with kindness and compassion and she repeated that several times. But she defined compassion. She gave Webster's definition of compassion, and then she improved on his. She said, here's my definition. And she listed five things that to her uh, meant compassion. And the first thing she listed was forgiveness. And that really struck our family that Rachel put such a high emphasis on forgiveness. And I remember... Uh, Shortly after the tragedy, we were out at Rachel's car, which became a big memorial uh, near next to the school. There were several memorial sites that were built, and, and around her car, they, they, they put thousands of flowers and books and all these things. And I remember Maria Shriver doing an interview, Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, 
wife did an interview with us, and she said to me, she said, uh, how do you feel about the boys who did this and, and their parents? And I said, well, our family talked about all this, and we, we made a choice to forgive and to move on and celebrate Rachel's life. And I saw her head just jerk back. Later, after the interview, she came up to me and said, someday I'd like to talk to you more about, about that. She said, I couldn't forgive anyone who had done what they did to your daughter. And I've said then and I say now that I would not have pardoned Eric and Dylan, but I forgave them. My daughter would not have wanted Eric and Dylan to ruin our lives uh, because of unforgiveness. In fact, she was the one that told us to forgive. With our family, as we chose to forgive, my, my son Craig, who was in the library, had the hardest struggle with that issue. And uh, he was very angry, and rightly so. I mean, he had every reason to be angry. His sister was killed. He watched his two close friends kill beside him. He, he, uh, he was terrorized. I mean, I can't imagine what Craig went through facing these two boys looking down the barrel of their guns and came as close as anybody I've ever met to dying. And uh, so he struggled and with that issue. And forgiveness is, is something that sometimes we need to, to do over and over again until it takes, you know, and, until the grace of God is firmly there for us to, to let go. And I'm so glad that Craig has. Craig is truly forgiven and moved ahead with his life and chose to celebrate Rachel's life instead of the anger and the bitterness that we see with so many other people. For me personally, there's no way I could have, in my own strength, forgiven Eric and Dylan. I would have been mad at them for the rest of my life. Uh, but I, I didn't feel anger at first. My, my deepest reaction was just incredible sorrow. I just was so devastated by Rachel's death because I have five children and she was, we called her a spark plug because she was the, the spark plug of our family. And it was like <clears throat> they, they took the light out of our family. I know that people who are not Christians go through tragedies similar to what I've gone through, and I don't, I don't know how I could have gone through all of this and kept my sanity, because we not only lost a daughter, we had uh, a son that we had to deal with for a full year after the tragedy, who had nightmares night after night, would wake up screaming, would relive the tragedy, would go into fits of rage because of, of his emotions would just get the best of him struggle to keep, keep his sanity for a year. I can't imagine what it's like to not, to not be a Christian and go through what we went through. I just can't even imagine it. I was in an interview with a, a national person, a person you see every day on television, I won't name her, but uh, we were doing an interview and, and um, a commercial break came and she leaned over and tapped me on the leg and she said, Mr. Scott, you're a very strong person. And I said, no, I'm not a strong person. I'm a very weak person, and I choose that weakness because I've learned a secret that Rachel learned too, that God's grace is there when we choose to be weak. And so, yes, I'm strong, but it's in the strength of His grace, not in my own strength. This is, to me, so important, is you need to acknowledge that you can't forgive within your own strength. That's the first step of forgiveness. And I, I, have, I had to say that, God, I cannot forgive Eric and Dylan and I confess that weakness, but out of my weakness, your strength is made perfect. And when we choose to be weak, God is strong. Uh, but there's so much that opened up as a result of forgiveness, you know.
Just think about that last statement. There's so much that opens up as a result of forgiveness. What's shut down in you right now because of bitterness? What could God open up for you if you learn to find strength through His grace and to be merciful? Because, as we've learned, each of these beatitudes is in the emphatic mode. So what Jesus is saying is that only the merciful will be shown mercy. Now there's several ways we could take this. We could take it as the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. (laughs) That somehow the magic to being treated well is to treat others well, but obviously Jesus is getting at something far more profound than that. We could take it a a second way, do unto others as you would have God do unto you. (laughs) That somehow if I'm forgiving to other people, then God will be forgiving to me, but that flies in the face of the gospel and the whole concept of mercy, which is about something we can't earn. And so what does it mean that we are shown mercy because we are merciful? Well, have you ever noticed that people that are the most bitter, that have the least mercy towards others, are actually hardest on themselves? Have you ever noticed that? Most people that are really mad at other people are just as mad at themselves. Why? Because they can't receive, they can't live in the blessing of mercy. And so how do I get into this place where I'm being shown mercy? Well, I get two quick points here and we'll wrap up. First, to not offer mercy is to operate outside of God's grace. It shuts down that same sense of mercy that I'm supposed to have before God because I'm unwilling to share it with others. And then secondly, I only experience mercy to the degree that I give mercy because that frees me up. I become a prisoner of bitterness. So look at it this way. We've looked at the Beatitudes from an if-then perspective to this point, but look at them as we finish now under this question, what keeps us from experiencing the blessed life as Christians? Because it's ours, we are the children of God, it's a work of grace by faith, we've just read that. God has made possible this blessed life, so what gets in the way of it? Why aren't we experiencing it? Well, let's come back at these Beatitudes that way then. What's one way that gets in the way of a blessed life? Our self-dependence. Our, our need to be dependent on ourselves. Instead, we need to be poor in spirit, but we can't be when self-dependency rules our hearts. Another one is our pride, our need to be worthy rather than mourning, mourning our unworthiness. A third is our need to control our outcome. That gets in the way of God's blessedness for us because instead we need to let go of control. We need to become meek. If a hungering and thirsting for righteousness or to paraphrase Paul's version of this, blessed are those who are hangry for righteousness. If that's it, then then what gets in the way? Our passions, our lusts our hungering and thirsting for 
other things than what is right before God. And so in terms of this fifth beatitude, what gets in the way of blessedness? Your grudges, your bitterness. What is shut down right now? What could open up if you just learn to forgive? I know that right now, specific people are coming to minds all around this room. And I just wanna call you out with great love and tell you, as Jesus said, be merciful, rich, generous in mercy as your Father is. None of us deserve mercy. But in Christ, all of us get it. Just wanna give you a moment to sit quietly and to let God speak to your heart about what's closed up right now, about the bitterness that's in your heart. And just confess to God, I can't let go of this. I can't do it on my own, I'm not strong enough. And then remember the words of that dad who said, yeah, that's right. You need to be weak, you need to give up on that and let God be strong, let his grace be strong in you. And then forgive, could you just do that right now? Can you just forgive and free yourself from that bitterness? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace. We didn't deserve it, but we got it because you have great love for us. Forgive us, Father, for not being conduits of that love and grace to others who have hurt us. Help us to bear in mind how badly our lives hurt you, dishonored you, and let us treat them with the same standard by which we have been treated through the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.